So uh, Jeff already mentioned that next week we are going to be pulling all our, our two classes together in the high school class to start this response to a bunch of questions you put up on the board. We're obviously not going to be able to answer all those questions this class, but five of them we will. And I love the Lord's sense of humor. Next week, Justin, Lippy, and I are going to be doing the class on technology. And if there was ever a Sunday where I just thought, I'm so glad I have these slides that will help pull everything together today. And it's as though he says, you know, you can just do it with me. So um, I just uh, enjoy laughing at that. But <clears throat> And so if you do fall asleep today, I'm going to blame it on the fact that uh, you're too dependent on technology. <laughs> There's no way it can be me. <clears throat> we are looking at the book of Philippians. If you uh, have a Bible and want to find that, um, we also are going to be paying very close attention to a few verses that are actually in your bulletin. So, uh, and even if you have a, um, a pencil or something, it might be helpful to have that. But we we are making our way through this little four-chapter book in the New Testament, uh, written to this little Roman colony of probably only 10,000 people and a church of probably about 60 people uh, that was written um, thousands, uh, almost 2,000 years ago now. Uh, and here we are uh, looking at it because we recognize it's not just an ancient letter. It's the very words of God to everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ. So... Here's what's happening. Just to recap, it's always good to keep going over it. This little group of Philippian believers that are proportionally a lot larger than what you guys had in Tunisia. Uh, but this little group of uh, believers uh, in, in Philippi uh, are finding it much more difficult to follow Jesus than when they first met Jesus a few years back. Uh, they're experiencing opposition, their views are not only um, uh, strange to the ears of people around them, their leader happens, the guy who started the church, happens to be a criminal in a prison, uh, so they're suffering shame from that. Their views are very unpatriotic, uh, so they're experiencing opposition from that. In addition to that, there's a very popular and twisted version of Christianity that they're uh, very tempted to believe uh, that would make them feel more like Jews, and the Jews have a lot more credibility in Philippi than these guys do, so that's going on. And then uh, to make matters worse, they're experiencing significant physical poverty. And so all these are combining together to uh, uh, make it like uh, waters crashing uh, against the outside of their ship. Uh, it, there's even you know, some sense in which are we going to make it. So not only do they have all these waves crashing on the outside, no, no doubt that when, you're, when your boat is being knocked around back and forth, you're going to get seasick on the inside. And so they're experiencing problems on the inside. There's this poisonous spirit of self-seeking that's going on. And in short, the Philippian believers are dealing with anxiety and fragmentation. What they need is perseverance. What they need is to increase their capacity to suffer in following Jesus. And that's why this letter was written. Now, our circumstances aren't exactly the same. There's some crossover, but our need is exactly the same. We're living in a day of excessive anxiety 
And we're living in a day of excessive fragmentation. And we need Philippians to, to fix that, to, to bind us back together. And so we've, so far, all we've covered is one sentence in the beginning of the chapter. It, it covers verses 3 through 8. It's one long sentence in the original Greek New Testament. And here, it's interesting what Paul does, despite what they're experiencing. You know what he opens his letter with? Joyful confidence in them. They may not have joyful confidence in themselves, but he says, look, I've seen the evidence of it. I've seen the evidence of God's work that he began in you. And if God began it, he will definitely complete it. And so that's the, the tone we're seeing. He's not talking about his hard circumstances yet. He's not talking about their hard circumstances. He beautifully opens this book by focusing, in, focusing them on the work that God has begun in them. And uh, that's why I love one of the definitions of joy. And joy is a main theme in this little letter. That one of the definitions of joy is a defiant nevertheless. A defiant, nevertheless. If I look at my circumstances, I might panic. I might give in to anxiety. I might believe that fragmentation and anxiety are winning. But if I keep my eyes on the work of God, however small, knowing it's his work and therefore it can't fail, if I keep my eyes on that, I can say I defy anxiety. I defy fragmentation. Nevertheless, the promise of God will win out. That's joy. And that's what we see really right off uh, the bat here. Now, in verses 3 through 8, he basically says, this is what I experience when I pray for you. And now in 9 and 11, he's going to actually tell us what he prays for them. Now, 10 or 15 years back, if I was preaching this text, the most natural place for me to go is how you should pray for people. And by the way, that's a great sermon. Not that I gave, but I'm just saying... <laughs> Uh, it's a great sermon if someone gave that. In other words, that's a good message. That message is here, how to pray for people. But I hope to demonstrate to you today, there's actually, I think, something richer and far more important in these few verses. And so here it is. It's right on your bulletin. Here's what I, here's what I want to try to demonstrate for you today. The inseparable bond between love and theology. The inseparable bond between love and theology. So, how do I even get that? All right, let's look at it. Just 9 through 11. And so, if, if you're uh, looking at that in your bulletin, I'm going to emphasize what I want you to pay attention to right now as I read this. This is sort of an audio version of the slide behind me. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment, so that, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I think it's very clear here as you slow down, look at these words, Read them again and again and start circling the way the whole sentence structure is put together. That the key to verses 9 and 11 is this little phrase, approve what is excellent. Here's what I pray for you. I pray that, I pray that um, this may happen, verse 9, 
so that verse 10 would happen, this life, this, this life habit would happen, so that ultimately it would result in the end goal of your whole existence, the rest of verse 10 all the way through verse 11. So let's take it apart a little bit. Paul is talking about this life habit, approve what is excellent. And it's written in the language of something that you don't just do once. Oh, once at the beginning of Christianity, I approved what is excellent, and then that's it. The idea is that you're constantly over and over and over again approving what is excellent. So this word excellent can mean things like superior or greater value are what really matters. Those would all be acceptable, different kinds of words you could stick in there for the word excellent. And then this word approve means to distinguish or to separate or to test. In fact, one of the, one of the perfect places it's demonstrated is in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 41 where it speaks about how we're able to, to, to see, to, di- to differ between stars of greater glory and stars of lesser glory. You know, so the stars that come out first in, in, at night are the stars of greater glory. And so that's that idea of differing between greater and lesser glories. So the idea here is that uh, another way to say approve what is excellent is to say repeatedly choose what really matters. Repeatedly choose what really matters, which, of course, begs the question, doesn't it? What really matters? What really does matter? What's, what's excellent? What's superior? Well, look at Romans chapter 12, a few books before this. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 would be a perfect place to go to get the answer for that. In fact, it almost sounds like, it's written by the same guy, the Apostle Paul, it sounds like He's just taken that idea of approve what is excellent and expanded upon it. So here, let's read it. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Boy, would I love to stop right now and ask the question and preach a whole sermon on, do you right now, if you belong to Jesus feel holy and acceptable to God without reservation? Do you? Well, it says right here, give your bodies to to God. Don't hesitate. Don't think, oh man, God's not going to, you know, God's not going to want me. Not when he knows what I've done, which he does. Uh, Listen, if you belong to Jesus, let me read it again. All right, mini sermon, and then we'll move on. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. You want to know what the mercies of God are? Read the first 11 chapters of Romans. That's the only way you and I can come and take bread and cup. Today, I only want people who are totally acceptable and holy to God to come and take bread and cup today. That's everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ, who's the object of his mercies. All right, should we just stop there and close in prayer? Okay. All right, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world. By the way, I I forgot the last little phrase here of verse 1. Holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship? By the way, that's what worship is. Constantly giving yourself to God over and over and over as a living sacrifice. And how do you do that? More specifically, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed. How? By constantly renewing your mind. So that by testing, approving, you may discern what is this will of God. All the things that are good, acceptable, and perfect. 
So is that what he's talking about in Philippians 1, approve what is excellent? Is he talking about God's will, all the things that are good, acceptable, and perfect? Yes. And dot, dot, dot. I actually think it's even more than that. Let's look back, look back at Philippians 1. As I kill the spider going across. Oh, there he goes. Um, <clears throat> that was part of my text. Uh, but anyway, uh, look at these two words here in verse 9. I want your love to abound more and more with what? Knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and discernment. It, those of you who remember, and I'd be surprised if you do, because I don't remember what I preached when we first started Philippians, but there were four main words that are key words that pull this letter together. They, they are the words joy, obviously. Uh, they are the words gospel. There is in Christ, that actually shows up the most, but there's one other that shows up almost more than joy, and that is knowledge. And here it is. So this idea of knowledge. Now, knowledge is the broadest term, and discernment is a narrow term. Knowledge is content, and discernment is insight into that content. How many of you remember or have seen kids do this or uh, grandkids do this, the dot-to-dot? Dot? Is that, That's still around, isn't it? Dot-to-dot? Dot? Okay, knowledge is the dots. But the dots need something in order to connect them, right? So by each dot is a number or a letter. And so discernment is the letters and dot is the knowledge. Do you see how hard it's going to be to live without discernment? If you really want to see the pattern, you need uh, both of this. And in fact, when you put these two things together, knowledge and discernment, you have something else that actually Jason Smith talked about last week, biblical wisdom. That's what biblical wisdom is. So Proverbs is one of the main books in the Bible that speaks about biblical wisdom. And it says, the, uh, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, so you put all that together and say, what Proverbs is saying is that knowledge, every human being gets some form of knowledge in life. Knowledge that's regulated by the fear of the Lord, that's what gives you wisdom. Without the fear of the Lord, you've got arrogance. So knowledge regulated by the fear of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord doesn't mean being afraid of God. It means being uh, adoring of God, so admiring him, so trusting him that you can trust what he says. So it's the knowledge regulated by the fear of the Lord. And ultimately, biblical wisdom is a skill. It's not data. Biblical wisdom is a skill. It requires data. It requires knowledge that's regulated by the fear of the Lord. But it's a skill. And you know what's a skill in Proverbs? Biblical wisdom is a pathfinder skill. You're constantly finding the path on the, on the, where, where God is treading as opposed to the path, the path of the fool who's straying. So biblical wisdom is this pathfinding skill. Now, the point of it is that and this is all getting back to Romans 12, and it's all getting back to Philippians 1. I'm getting there. The path leads somewhere. The path actually leads somewhere. You see, what really matters, what is excellent, what is superior, what is the ultimate gift of the gospel is not forgiveness. It is God himself. 
What happened when our first parents were created? God gave them a choice between the tree of good and evil and all the other trees in paradise. You know what that really was? You can either choose me and all my bounty, or you can go at it on your own, the tree of good and evil. They, were re- they weren't just rejecting uh, some commands. They were rejecting God himself. And so what knowledge and discernment does is it keeps the big story of the Bible on our front windshield. That's what biblical wisdom does. It keeps the big story, I guess I shouldn't say windshield, I should say Google Maps or whatever, but it keeps that in front of us so that that's what we're, we're headed toward. It helps us seek first God and his kingdom, and here's how it relates to love. It aims our love at what really matters. That's what biblical wisdom does. It aims our love at what really matters in life. Because the big story of the Bible is not that you have your sins forgiven forever. That's great, by the way. The big story of the Bible is that God is restoring paradise better than the original. That's what the whole Bible is about. And he's already begun the process. He's already begun to people it. And soon he will place it. You know, he will work through all of that. He'll begin to put people, place, and power all back to their original design. In fact, better than their original design. So, let me just give you some examples of how this knowledge comes together. How theology, which is knowledge and discernment leading to biblical wisdom, enabling us to choose over and over again what is excellent, God. That's, that's what I mean by theology. This constant habitual life practice of taking knowledge plus discernment leading to the wisdom to be able to constantly choose over and over what really matters, God himself. That connects with love. And listen to the many ways in the Bible you'll hear this. In Leviticus 26, the first time you hear this, and this this idea occurs over and over again in the Old Testament, and it makes its way all the way into the New Testament. God says, I will make my dwelling among them. And I will walk among them. What's the only other time the Bible seems to speak about God walking among human beings? Paradise, right? I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. We will be in relationship with one another. We will know one another. That's what theology means, to know God. Or uh, Jeremiah 31, 34, when God uh, announces this new covenant. He says, and no longer shall each one When God comes, when grace comes into the world, when Jesus fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament, something will happen to human beings. The law will no longer be an external thing. I will convert them, and I will take my law, and I will put it on their hearts. So listen to this. So no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. That's theology. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember 
their sin no more. And so what does Jesus say in John 17? He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know me, the only true God, or that they may know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. There it is again, knowledge of God, eternal life, all connected together. Or take a, a place like Galatians that describes what conversion is like. Galatians chapter 4 says this in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, so there's everybody in the world who doesn't know God, and then there's believers, they know God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, and I like this little phrase, you know, every time, you've heard me say this before, take a phrase out of the Bible sometimes and the sentence still makes sense, but it loses all of its glory. So here's the phrase. By now that you have come to know God, here it is, or rather to be known by God. Yes, yes, you know God, but you realize he first knew you before you knew him. He loved you. He went out and got you. He connected you to him. Uh, he says, how can you then turn back again to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Romans chapter 8, if God is for you, who can be against you? So there's all this language over and over in the Bible about our knowledge of God, our relationship with God, and our love for God. In fact, Jesus puts all of the commandments under two, right? What are they? And they basically are a, a shortened version of the Ten Commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then I would put in there so that you can love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you can't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength if you don't know God. And the more you know God, the more you wind up loving God. So that's what I mean by theology and love are bound together. Let me just take a step back here and sort of then pivot and say, okay, so what does all this mean then on a sort of day-to-day street level? Back in 1993, a professor out of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary named David Wells wrote a series of three books over a couple years. They turned out to be one of those watershed books. I mean, everybody in, within evangelicalism at the time was, at least a lot of the thinkers and movers of that movement were affected by it, even outside of evangelicalism. And what Wells did is he made a beautiful argument documenting it how from 1800 to 1900, theology had slowly moved out of the church to become the property of the seminaries. And in the process, the church and the seminary became two silos. As professors of theology began to specialize, theology that they taught was less and less relevant and connecting to people. It's as though today I... I wanted to bring all of you together. We're going to have a cursive writing class today. Really? So it became the property of theological geeks. But what was happening in the church? Well, the church began to democratize theology. In other words, 
It didn't take great learning or experts to know the Bible. In fact, everyone was entitled to their own equally authoritative interpretation of any place in the Bible. Well, as a result, we began accepting sound bites over sound teaching. Our children began give, being given opinions over teaching them how to form opinions. Anecdotal experience over enduring arguments and the rejection of the source over the examination of the source's content. And those things contributed to this dismantling of theology in the local church. But this is where God intended to the, be the richest and deepest discussions about theology, the local church. So let me just give you, kind of by way of application, the Word of God is always showing us a way out of the trends of the age. And there's a simple way out. It really is. Three things. I'll just say them briefly. Pray theologically, stay in school, and learn to hover. So pray theologically, stay in school, and learn to hover. Well, right off the bat, Philippians chapter 1, Paul gives us an application without maybe even meaning to. When you pray, pray theology in your prayers. Make them theologically informed. That's what he does here in almost every, in fact, almost every prayer in the New Testament is a theologically informed prayer with a half a reference to circumstances. So think about how do you pray for most people? If there was a little sort of invisible transcriber of all your prayers, and this isn't to make you feel guilty, it's just to bring awareness, and they were to follow you around for one year and document all of your, the words that you used when you prayed. How many of those words are about circumstances that come and go, and how many of those words are about theological things that are forever? Just something to chew on. What would it look like if every prayer included something like, Lord, honor your name. Honor your name among our church family. Our Lord, cause your kingdom to advance. Our Lord, may your will be stronger than my will. Those are all taken from how Jesus taught us to pray, by the way. And Sometimes if you don't know what to pray theologically in a prayer, just find a way to add the Lord's Prayer to your prayer somehow. So start thinking about ways to make your prayers more theologically informed. We want our love to multiply as our theological choices get better. The second thing is stay in school. There's a guy, James Smith, uh, out of Calvin University, just right in our backyard over here in Grand Rapids. He's written a book called You Are What You Love. And the biggest premise of that book is taken from the passage today in Philippians chapter 1. Listen to this statement. It's just one sentence that caught my attention. He says, Paul's conviction in Philippians 1 here is not that we are what we think. Rather, we are what we love. We are not what we think, we are what we love. We learn to love then, not primarily by acquiring more information about what we should love, but rather through practices that form the habits of how we love. You love what you do, not because of information going into you, but because of habits 
that are connected to that information. He calls them liturgies. The church isn't the only place with liturgies. He says these rituals, they are not things that we do. They are something that they do something to us. They're not things that we do. They are things that do something to us. So we have sports liturgies, right? You want to get into hockey? My, one of my sons is into hockey. I didn't know much about it. So I had to start learning liturgy in order to be able to shape my loves around hockey. Uh, we, we have liturgies of shopping. Trust me. The car that you chose for yourself, you did not choose it. Your liturgical community chose it for you. Uh, you didn't choose your decorating styles. Those, hardly anything you, do, you have chosen in life has been your own independent choice. You are part of liturgies that influence you and that tell you how to dress. They tell you the shows to watch. And these rituals get repeated over and over again. So what do we do? In order to offset all of these um, secular liturgies, Every Lord's Day on Sunday, we go through liturgical motions. We have three liturgical schools here. Small groups, the 9.30 hour that you've been hearing about today, and this worship service. And in these liturgical things, we habitually recite things, we habitually listen, we habitually discuss things, we habitually pray over things, we continue to sing things and socialize together. And whether you realize it or not, even if you're here 50% attentive, something is being done to you week after week, month after month, year after year. The secular liturgies are losing their charm and God-centered liturgies are winning over you. That's the beauty of being together. Lastly, practice hovering. Theology cooks in a crock pot, not a microwave. Here's probably the most practical thing I'm going to tell you this morning, I think. Not everybody needs this in this room, but I think most of us do. You need to take in less so that your attention span can take in more. You need to take in less so that your attention span can take in more. You're going to have a very difficult time beholding the theological grandeur of God with a short attention span. And by the way, preview of next week, if technology has done anything, beginning before the television, it has shortened the human attention span like nothing in history. And even what we're doing today requires an attention span that's off the charts. So if I've lost you by now, you're forgiven. Um, So here's some other things under hovering. Learn to read, don't just watch. Learn to read, don't just watch. Do not lose your ability to read. Your mind thinks differently when you read something versus watch something. In fact, I just tell you practically, consider reading one theological book a year by a trusted source. Don't just pick up anything. Just one theological book a year can only be, it can be 200 pages at the most. And I guarantee you in three or four years, you will be astounded how this book just pops out and comes alive in a way you never imagined. Learn to soak in a few verses instead of try to digest a whole chapter. In fact, better still, 
take two or three verses and actually write them out. I don't know if you know how to do that. I've sometimes realized when I actually write a letter, my hand gets cramped up. But when you, when you write, your mind thinks a different way. It slows down. It grabs a hold of stuff. It notices things that reading just wouldn't. Lastly, know the forest so you don't stumble over the trees. If you want to get a good handle on that, there's something called the Bible Project Videos. They must have about 100 of them now. Bible Project Videos. They're little short videos. They on tons of stuff in the Bible. One of the great things these do is they show us how to look at a tree, a chapter in the Bible, a verse in the Bible, by keeping the whole forest in mind. Because if you don't keep the whole forest in mind, you're going to bump into the trees. And after a year or two, you're going to have a lot of knots on your forehead and not much in your heart. Okay, I pressed that metaphor too far. But anyway, <laughs> let me wrap it up by having you turn to 1 Corinthians 13, the text that Tim read for us. And for just a moment, I know this is going to be difficult for most of you. I can bet more than anything else that you've heard this text in weddings more than you have in sermons. And by the way, if you're thinking of getting married and you want to use this text, that's fine. But can I just advocate that you use something else instead? If I speak in the tongues of men and angels... But don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. I can have prophetic powers, I can understand all mysteries. Knowledge is basically useless without love, it goes on to say. Same thing with generosity, verse 3, sacrifice. And then it has this wonderful definition of love. It's patient, it's kind, does not if your boast, it's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful and if our text stopped right there, I think it would be safe to say something like, love is this relentless, sacrificial devotion to another. In fact, a lot of people outside the church would love that definition too, right? Love is this relentless, sacrificial devotion to another. But remember, love is inseparably bound to theology, so verse 6, which gets very little attention, ought to get the most. You see, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It doesn't just love everybody no matter what they're doing. It rejoices with the truth because it's so married to the truth, they cannot be together or they can't ever be separated. And that's why it bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. You see, with theology... Love really is this magical thing in 1 Corinthians 13 and not some sappy marriage song. It's so much richer than that. You see, love is, can I complete the definition with verse 6? Love is the relentless, sacrificial devotion to another's redemption. And so what does Jesus say in Ephesians chapter 5? I love the church and I'll prove it by redeeming her from every spot and wrinkle. That's what love is. Without theology, love has no guidance system. It's like blowing up a balloon in this room and letting it go. It's reduced to a feeling, looking for the superior in all things inferior. 
which is why love without theology is the exact opposite of verse 7. It can't bear all things. It eventually begins to doubt all things. It loses hope, and as a result, it fails. But not love when it's inseparably bound to theology. Let me have you take a moment, think about this. What's the Lord trying to say to you? I'm going to ask the worship team and the guys serving communion to come forward. Like I said earlier, this bread and cup is open to everyone here who is holy and acceptable. In other words, everyone who's under the mercies of Jesus Christ. But as you think about this, I'm going to give you one more word in a minute, but I want you to just take a few minutes right now and um, just consider why did the Lord bring you here and what's he saying to you? pray for us in just a second, but I want you to see the last part of Philippians 1 again. As we go through life approving what is excellent, constantly choosing what really matters, God, we're becoming pure and blameless. We're becoming filled with the fruit of righteousness, it says. If I can put it this way, we are becoming what we habitually choose. And someday, we will be perfectly righteous and and pure. But even before then, the end of verse 11, the glory and praise of God is being increased. Now, God doesn't need more glory. He has all glory. So why does the Bible talk about our ability to glorify God? It simply means that as we're becoming more and more what we choose, the glory of God is becoming more and more visible like Yosemite under a fog that's slowly lifting. And we're unbelievable what's being revealed. But there's one word here, one little preposition, that without it, the whole system would collapse, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. All of this is possible. Because everything that we have, this ability to approve what is excellent, to know what is excellent, to have access to knowledge, discernment, to practice it over and over again, all of that comes through what Jesus Christ began on the cross and continues to do from, from his throne. Paul's prayer is not a formula for success. It's a promise that God will always answer this prayer because of Christ. Let me pray. As we come, Lord, we do so, so grateful that sinners can become beautiful saints because of Christ. So may our love abound still more and more, coupled with all knowledge and discernment so that we would go from this bread and cup, approving and choosing over and over again what is superior, what really matters, what is excellent, you, Lord. 
over all other things. For Jesus' sake, amen.